opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to the 2022 MCAC Luncheon. My name is Cheryl Cummings, and I'm the chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee. And we are so excited to have our guests on Zoom join us. And we are so excited to have all these lovely people in the room with us today. So I am going to turn this over to two of my committee members, Regina Brink and Lisa Sled, to introduce our speakers for this um, luncheon. So I want to tell you a bit about our First speaker, Margaret Hiddle, descended from the Lacourt Oray Ojibwe, Assyrian refugees, and European settlers. She's assistant professor in history and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. She is a scholar of Native American history and the North American West. Her research examines the continuity of Ojibwe sovereignty in the context of settler colonialism. Her research has been published in several places, including the Journal of Ethno-History and the forthcoming Understanding and Teaching Native American History, University of Wisconsin Press. She has also put her historical research to work on the recent redesign of the Oregon Trail video game. Take it away, Lisa. All right, let's give a warm ACB welcome to Professor Margaret Hiddle. Thank you. Um, I was asked to help give you all a historical overview of Native American life and community in the Nebraska area. I myself am a relative newcomer to this place. Um, I moved here about six years ago from what's currently Wisconsin, and I'm going to share some of what I have observed and learned from my perspective as a Native person living outside of my own homelands about the Indigenous nations and people living in what is currently Nebraska. There is one theme that stands out to me with particular clarity, and it's this. Indigenous survival and resilience in the face of more than 150 years of attempts to displace, erase, and replace the Native people who call this place home. So the land that we currently call Nebraska has always been and will continue to be an indigenous homeland. It's right there in the name. Nebraska comes from an Oto or Omaha word, um, Nebraska, meaning flat water, which refers to the river that the French called the Platte and which flows about 30 miles south of where those of you in Omaha are sitting this afternoon. Closer to Omaha is the Missouri River, a sacred source of life that, like the um, Nebraska, helped to connect Indigenous communities across both time and space. The prairies have always been a gathering place where Indigenous people exchanged goods and ideas and built complex economic, political, and kinship networks. At least 15 distinct nations have traditional and ongoing relationships with this land. 
the Pawnee, Ponca, Omaha, Ocho, Missouri, and Kaw or Kanza people lived here, planting crops such as corn, beans, and squash, and hunting buffalo. Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples lived and hunted here as well. The salt marshes along Salt Creek, which is better known today for the recreational trails that follow its path through the capital city of Lincoln, brought indigenous people to the area for trade and ceremonial purposes. Generations of indigenous families buried their dead beneath the grass. Um, as Ponca leader, as a Ponca leader named Standing Bear stated in 1876 while fighting against the forced removal of his people, quote, this land is ours. We have never sold it. We have our houses and our homes here. Our parents and some of our children are buried here. Here we wish to live and die, end quote. More recently, dislocated from their homes by colonial violence, the Sac and Fox, the Dakota, the Ho-Chunk or Winnebago, and the Iowa people rebuilt their communities on the land that is currently Nebraska. Learning about the Native history in Nebraska, or um, anywhere else in the United States for that matter, means learning about the harm done to Native nations and individuals in the name of American so-called progress. Not only in the past, but, you know, this also ripples through to the present. Um, and one of the, so I want to tell, um, use a story of one of the best known Native people in Nebraska. Um, so, one of the best known native people who found themselves in the place now called Nebraska is Standing Bear, who I mentioned earlier. Standing Bear was a Ponca leader who, along with his wife, Zazette Primo, and other leaders, helped his people navigate and survive the U.S. invasion. At a time when the official policy in the United States was to forcibly clear the prairies of native people to make room for the U.S., um, or more specifically, white settlement, the Ponca people refused to leave their houses and homes. Most of us have probably heard about the Trail of Tears and Cherokee people's experiences with, the re with removal, but I don't think many of us learn that similar stories were repeated from New York to New Mexico and everywhere in between, including Nebraska. In the 1860s, the United States had promised the lands it claimed on the prairies to its citizens through measures such as the Homestead Act, which gave, quote unquote, free land to people who settled in what were undeniably still Native people's farms and hunting grounds. Not to mention, this nation's public state school system was funded by selling off the lands of indigenous people such as the Ponca, Lakota, and Omaha, either through outright theft or by compensating Native people less than $400,000 in total for the 10.7 million collective acres that were sold out from under them. This is the context in which Ponca families were forced from their lands to make room for Nebraska and the rest of the United States. Despite Standing Bear and other Ponca leaders' absolute refusal to leave, and despite treaties that protected their right to remain in their homelands, 
with the federal government forced the Ponca people on what amounted to basically a death march with bayonets at their back and the hot summer sun beating down on them. Um, if you have gone outside at all yesterday in particular, you know how hot um, it can get on the prairies. Um, so they marched through what is currently Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma in 1877. And the United States grossly mishandled Ponca removal. At least a third of the tribe died along the march and in their first years on their new reservation in Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. And the survivors were left undernourished, sick, and full of grief. Um, One of the casualties was the 16-year-old son of Zazette and Standing Bear. Uh, The story goes that the boy's last wish was to be buried in the same lands as his ancestors. Um, And so Standing Bear, Zazette, and several dozen other Ponca men, women, and children carried him home. They walked back home hundreds of miles to bury the boy. Um, When they reached the Omaha reservation, the Omaha people had not been forcibly removed from Nebraska. Um, They... um, Uh, they were living in the same place that they had always lived and they welcomed um, the Ponca refugees um, onto their reservation. um, When they got there, the U.S. Army arrested and incarcerated Standing Bears group. Now, there were enough non-Native people who recognized the cruelty of U.S. violence against Native people. Um, And I'll pause quickly to say, never let someone dismiss this kind of brutality as just the way it was um, or, um, you know, part of that moment in time. Um, There were always people, Native, Black, white, um, who contested injustice at the time it was going on. And that's very true of um, Indian removal as well. And so to make a very long and complicated story short, um, the Ponca, represented by Standing Bear himself, found a non-Native lawyer and a sympathetic newspaper editor who helped them take their their case to federal court and defend the Ponca using the 14th Amendment, which had recently been ratified and added to the United States Constitution. The government tried to argue that Standing Bear and other Native people were not, quote unquote, persons legally under the meaning of the law. But the United States District Court ultimately did rule in favor of Standing Bear, um, and they held basically that he and his band were actually people, persons, legal persons under the meaning of the law, um, and they were entitled to break their tribal connections, which he argued they had done by leaving the reservation in Oklahoma, and were free to... um, as he put it, enjoy the rights of any other person in the land. Um, So they were allowed to remain in Nebraska. Now, in Nebraska, you will hear this as a story of the triumph of U.S. justice, um, a moment of shining um, equality where, you know, the U.S. got it right. And it certainly is a pretty stunning example of indigenous resistance and resilience and the power of allies to push back against the status quo. But that's only part of the story. Um, In order to be people under the law, 
Native people like Standing Bear had to renounce um, or kind of give up their tribal citizenship. Standing Bear's case very significantly did not get the Ponca their homeland back. It didn't end the forced removal of the Ponca or other Native nations in Nebraska. Um, Another part of the story that often gets glossed over when it's told in pop culture in Nebraska um, is the role of the Omaha people in um, supporting their Ponca neighbors, including the work of a woman named Suzette LaFleche Tibbles, who was the daughter of an Omaha of a Omaha leader who served as a translator at Standing Bear's trial. Um, She used her education, which the United States might have hoped would make her less Indian, to defend indigenous rights. Um, The Standing Bear example is not the end of a story in which justice and equality were achieved, but it's, um, I would say, one key moment in a longer fight for indigenous integrity, autonomy, and basic human rights. Um, In the past few years, Nebraska Native leaders have fundraised to put a statue of Standing Bear in the U.S. Capitol, um, and there is at least one scholarship for Indigenous college students in Standing Bear's name. So um, his legacy lives on to this day. Um, And that's why the Standing Bear story is an example that I like to use to help people understand both the history and the present of indigenous communities in Nebraska. It shows how indigenous people have worked together to protect their homes and families. It's an example of their brave and creative legal strategies, the way indigenous people have risked their own safety for the betterment of their communities and for future generations, as well as the possibilities of what can happen when indigenous and non-indigenous people work together to protect sovereignty and build relationships for a better future. Um, And that's the story of Native people in Nebraska. Despite the ongoing efforts to displace and even erase them um, from this place, their homeland, Indigenous people remain. So like I just said, Standing Bear's story was not an end point. Forced removal continued, and even those nations who managed to secure land bases in Nebraska faced continued dispossession. Um, U.S. policy in general shifted from removal to assimilation or the effort to, quote, kill the Indian, save the man, as Colonel Richard Henry Platt Pratt infamously said, um, while removing Native children from their parents and sending them to overcrowded, unsanitary schools, to use the term school very generously. Boarding schools, which were really sites of forced re-education and labor for Native children who were punished for speaking their language and made to do the work to keep the schools running, and um, who and this has become very clear in recent federal government investigations, um, these children often died from the lack of care that they received at these schools. Um, 
Boarding school policy went hand in hand with land policies that broke reservations up into individual privately owned parcels of land, leading directly to the taking of an additional 90 million acres or two thirds of the lands that indigenous nations had managed to protect under treaties. On the plains, um, some of these so-called schools continued into the 1960s. So it's very much a recent, um, a recent, it's not the past, right? The distant past. It's very much a part of our present. Um, and Native people today continue to deal with the consequences um, of fragmented, fractured reservations that cut them off from resources and open their lands and waters to environmental exploitation without consent or um, even compensation. And yet, Native people are still here and they are still thriving. Um, I feel like at this point, I spent enough time talking about the past. Um, Like I said, Native people are very much present in Nebraska today. Um, I noticed it when I moved here, and I wasn't really expecting it. Um, There's a thriving community in Lincoln that welcomed me and made me feel at home, even far from my own people's homelands. Um, In addition to just living their lives, um, trying to survive a pandemic that disproportionately impacts their communities, for instance, Native people um, actively make their voices heard throughout the state. They're fighting pipelines that threaten their lands and waters. They protest police brutality and ally with Black and refugee communities in the name of justice and civil rights. They fight for better representation. Um, One one example um, that happened in my time here is advocating for an end to um, mythologized celebrations of Christopher Columbus. Um, And now that's also Indigenous Peoples Day in Nebraska Um, and improving knowledge and education for all Nebraska citizens in ways that support Native people. If a person spends more than a few days in Nebraska and doesn't learn something about Native people in the past and in the present, they're not paying attention. Native people are everywhere in Nebraska. Um, I'll wrap up with a story that I think resonates with what I've been talking about this afternoon. And it connects back to the story about Ponca removal that I told earlier. Um, When the Ponca people were forced from their homes, one of the things that they brought with them on that long and deadly walk were their seeds, um, in particular corn seeds. For the Ponca people, um, corn is sacred. It's part of what defines them as a people and embodies the relationship between themselves the creator, and the land. Um, And so when the federal government uprooted their lives, they took care to bring the corn to plant in their new homes. Um, But it turned out that the seeds didn't grow so well in Oklahoma soil um, and climate. 
Still, Ponca families protected the seeds. They tucked them away inside of books and jars um, and kept them safe for future generations. A few years ago, um, it's like 10 or 12 years ago, when the Ponca and other indigenous people were first um, really fighting the Keystone XL pipeline that threatened the Ogallala Aquifer and other sacred indigenous sites. Um, And they allied alongside non-Native farmers who shared concerns about the pipeline. Ponca leaders met a non-Native farmer and landowner who, um, because he got to know the Ponca people, their history and their present day activism and relationships, restored several acres of land that his settler family had acquired out of the Ponca homeland. um, He restored it to the tribe so that they could have a place back home to plant their seeds. Um, They've been doing it for about a decade now, coming together in the spring to plant and engage in ceremony and renewing relationships with places and people. Ponca corn is growing in Nebraska soil once again, and Ponca people have insisted on a future for their nation here in Nebraska. Um, The story of Ponca corn is a story of what good relationships can look like as we envision a different, more just future together in Nebraska and beyond. Um, Native issues are Nebraska issues. They are American issues. Um, Our histories, our presence, and our futures remain entangled. Uh, Miigwech. Thanks. All right. We have another speaker, Dr. Donna Polk. Dr. Donna Polk has worked to improve the lives of people for over 45 years as a paid staff member and as a volunteer. Beginning in 1985, she directed the Counseling Center at the Lincoln Indian Center, developing the Nebraska Department of the Military's first employment assistance program and was awarded a commendation medal from them. In 1991, Dr. Polk became the CEO of the Nebraska Urban Indian Health Coalition, which is NUIHC, serving Omaha, Lincoln, and Sioux City, Iowa, and delivering behavioral health affordable and transitional housing, primary care, tired moccasins elders, Project Beacon, and transportation services. While supervising university interns, she achieved her proudest accomplishment, establishing the Eagle Heights Campus Affordable Housing and Services in Southern Omaha. In 1999, she received her doctorate with a dissertation called Games Outdoor, and it's a study of the cultural beliefs of advanced practice nurses. Most recently, she serves on several community-based healthcare organizations, uh, boards of directors, and advisory boards. All right. Okay. Dr. Donna Polk has been very busy. So let's give her a very, very, very warm ACB welcome. Dr. Donna Polk. 
Thank you so much. And I just want to say what an honor it is to be here today. First of all, I want to acknowledge that we are on the land of the Omaha people who arrived in what they named Nebraska in around 1700s. Professor Huddle did an excellent presentation giving you a background of Native people on this land. And I tell you, it is sometimes stressful when I'm invited to participate in gatherings like this and people come to this city and leave it without understanding how it was even named. The Omaha people named this city. And so I hope as you go back to your land that you have a deep appreciation for the people who may have settled there, regardless of their race or ethnicity. As I said, I am very honored to be here. I love to talk about what I do. I've been there 30 years. I, I appreciate those of us who have had the opportunity to engage in work that is so fulfilling. I was invited here today to talk about the work that Nebraska Urban Indian Health does and how our work contributes to the building of community in Omaha. It is so important for us to always appreciate that if we are part of a community, and we all are, that if we have people who are not prospering, who are not healthy, who feel that they are not appreciated, it affects everyone in that community and sometimes outside of the community. So that is why we have a mission to do the work that we do. Starting with some background, in case you're not familiar with the coalition, we were incorporated in 1986 by visionary leaders who saw a need to provide culturally competent services in an effort to elevate the health status of urban people. Professor Huddle talked about relocation, and I just want to say, reemphasizing some of her words, that in the mid-70s, the government really had another relocation project, which moved Native people from east to west. And as they were moved from places like New York, Boston, Baltimore, to faraway places like Chicago, Minneapolis, San Francisco, Los Angeles, the Indian Health Service realized that they were really not accessing health care. So leaders like those leaders in Lincoln and Omaha and Sioux City organized around the issue of health and increasing access. So they formed a 501c3 nonprofit governing a group of people, very small group of people, who were inspired to try to address what those needs were at the time. And believe me, they really have not changed. Through conversation, we didn't call them focus groups back in the 80s and early 90s, but 
in conversations with members of the community, they said, what is it that you really need in order to prosper and to be a productive member of the community? And the responses focused on access. And I'm sure you can relate to what I'm saying when I say, if you have a clinic right across the street, but you can't cross that street to get to it, that's lack of access. And then once you get to the clinic, there's no one there who understands your suffering. And maybe you don't understand what it is. Then that's also an access issue. The other issue regarding access, and I forgot to mention, of course, transportation, but I just wanted to emphasize it can be right across the street from where you live, and that still can be an access issue. But the other thing that there was a lot of conversation about was drugs and alcohol. Back in the 80s, in the Native communities, alcohol was the most prevalently abused substance. Now it's methamphetamines and fentanyl. But they said, where can we go to get help? And a lot of times it was the elders in the community who saw something in the young people that they themselves may have experienced when they were young, and they certainly did not want it to continue. The other thing that they mentioned was programs for senior citizens and youth. There was nothing for people who were at home. Often they were at home caring for young relatives. There was nothing for them to do. And then finally, they wanted support for cultural activities. Because I'm sure no matter what your race or ethnicity is, you have different cultural activities that are important to you and your family members. So when I was hired 30 years ago, there was still those needs that the community was, had identified. So I set about trying to figure out what could I do with very little money and not a lot of experience working in this area. So one of the things I started doing was utilizing some of my education, which again said, you don't plan for people, you plan with people. That is so... <laughs> that is so important. So even if you aren't as successful as you'd like to be, usually your constituents will applaud you for even trying. But I know people with the very best of intentions who will start down a path that does not lead to meeting the needs of the people that they serve. And I think we're very fortunate to be looked upon as servant leaders. So again, with our mission being to elevate the health status of urban Indians and other underserved populations, we have set about to address health disparities through programming, education, collaboration, advocacy, and health service delivery. 
And because we have never had sufficient funding to do the things that our constituents identified and that we feel would really benefit the entire community, we have learned to collaborate. And I can give you some examples of very successful collaboration. Shortly after I was hired in, I lived in Lincoln, I was appointed to the Board of Health. And I really didn't understand why that was so important until I realized I was the first person of color to be appointed. And (laughs) I learned a lot during the nine years that I served about the importance of public health, that the role of health departments is to assess and assure, to assess the health status of the community and assure the community members that they're going to do something to address whatever issue it is. It was COVID-19, which is somewhat under control. Now it's monkeypox and fentanyl. And it saddens me that there are people in the community who have no understanding of the issues that I just mentioned, monkeypox and fentanyl. But it's an example of a need to make sure that no matter who the community members are, we must reach out to them to say, have you heard about this? And to figure out what do we need to do to make sure every person in our respective community has the same information that may save not only their lives, but lives of family members, neighbors, religious leaders, whomever. As I look through the information about your convention and your conference here, I was a little surprised to see diabetes mentioned. And I thought if I only had not been so overwhelmed with other responsibilities, I would have had my diabetes educator attend because we need to know what are you all talking about as it relates to diabetes. Why is that important? It's because diabetes is a major killer of Native American people. And so we think we know the answer and we spend about We spend a lot of money. I won't say how much it is, but it's a lot of money combating this dreaded chronic disease. It takes eyesight. It takes limbs. And finally, people will not survive. And so, like I said, I was very curious. And I hope that maybe we can establish a relationship with your Lincoln Council and your Omaha Council so that we can have more discussion about the impact of diabetes on our mutual communities because somebody needs to do something. And looking at the cost of insulin, uh, it's a tragedy. Why would someone want to make money off of something that can save a person's life. But again, in talking about collaboration and how important it is to hook up with people who share your mission, your hopes, and your dreams, 
to improve the lives of your constituents. We, in the early 70s, before we were actually the coalition, we partnered with the Spanish-speaking community to form an organization called the Indian Chicano Health Services. And so from 1986 to 1995, we partnered with them. And then they went on and, and became One World Community Health Center. And so what I did then was to um, approach St. Elizabeth's Regional Health Center in Lincoln and ask them if they would help us deliver health services. And we had a five-year contract, and I gave them all the money. I said, I don't even want money. I did, but I said I didn't. Because I needed their medical staff and some furniture uh, so that people in the community could access health care. Now, it's so important for you to understand that although we're called Nebraska Urban Indian Health Coalition, we acknowledge that many of our community members are in bicultural, interracial relationships. And so almost every service that we provide is open to anyone. And our clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska Urban Indian Medical Center, we serve people who speak Arabic, Kurdish, Spanish, Vietnamese, English. And I have staff who work there 40 hours a week who speak those languages. We don't have to use a, a telephone service. There are other groups that I wish we could be more efficient in serving, but right now that's what we do. And um, I'm very proud of that in terms of being able to offer those services. And like I said, well, thank you. <laughs> I can't tell you with the day I've had already how, how rewarding it is that you would acknowledge um, my words. I tell you, it's, it's very, very gratifying. Um, again, just thinking about diabetes. Did any of you go to the diabetes workshops? Okay, thank you. Well, again, um, I hope if there's someone in this room that I can leave contact or, sorry, on the Zoom with, I'd really like to have my staff get in touch with you to see if there's anything that we can do. Um, most of the programs throughout the country, and there are 41 of us organizations that deal with urban Indians, if you contact them, the majority of them have programs to work with people who are diabetic or who may live in a household with someone who is uh, diabetic. The other thing regarding treatment, drug and alcohol treatment, I do have a contract with the Indian Health Service so that the 16-bed facility that we have is for Native people only. And there's a reason for that, and it's cultural. And that is a lot of the work that we do is based on the cultural beliefs of the population. However, our outpatient services are open to anyone. 
And that can be just as important. Some people can't go to residential treatment because of their jobs. They're still trying to earn a living or they may be in school. Uh, So we design IOP or intensive outpatient programs for to meet their needs. And I'm telling you, it's becoming increasingly important that family members, community members get involved in understanding what drugs are doing to communities. There is a direct correlation between drugs and violence. And I tell you, now we can see that you're almost not safe anywhere. And a lot of it has to do with trauma. People have had traumatic experiences for which they have not been able to receive mental health services. You look at them and they look like maybe they could use some help that they have been denied or maybe not even denied, but people didn't realize that they really needed it. And so that's why it's so important for us to know our surroundings in our homes, in our churches, in social groups, wherever we are. We have to acknowledge that people may be suffering loss of jobs, loss of family members, it's going to take a couple of years to people, for people to really understand what COVID has done to their communities. They'll say, well, anybody heard from Uncle Joe? No, you know, Uncle Joe died. He passed away. Well, I didn't go to the funeral. There wasn't a funeral. We couldn't have a funeral. And it's like, oh, my goodness, what happened? You see, so the other thing, the group that I want to talk about a little bit are our tired moccasins. That's our senior group. And it was very hard for me to get money to fund the tired moccasins. And now that I'm old, I kind of understand why that is. I think people devalue us as we age. And certainly a lot of our youngsters don't think we have what they can relate to. So I just decided I was going to do it anyway. So we have the tired moccasins. We partnered with the Eastern Nebraska Office on Aging. They give us free meals. So Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, the elders get lunch. We partnered with the University of Nebraska Medical Center College of Nursing. They send nurses out to do educational presentations. And I think we really need to pay attention to our elders. Many of them are caring for young people. And yes, my grandmother raised me till she died when I was nine. But I remember almost everything she told me. That's why I'm standing up here today with a Ph.D. because of my grandma. And the only. I'm saying the only book I ever saw my grandmother read was the Bible. Okay, So I'm just saying that elders. Play a key role in our communities, but we have to take care of them. 
because my son, my son reminded me that I have almost everything that I was born with. He said, Mama, you have almost everything you were born with. So imagine your arteries are 79 years old. And he didn't have to add that part, but you know, think about it in terms of why we must take care of ourselves. Many of us live in food deserts. And now we're, because we can't hardly afford to buy food, the critical piece is those of us who are still able to get out and influence policymakers, we have to make sure that our young and our old are being fed nutritious meals. My son said you shouldn't eat anything that has more than five ingredients in it. And it's hard for me to listen because I know he is really telling the truth and he's working my own interests. But sometimes, you know, it's hard to take because he anyway, y'all got kids, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But like uh, the professor said, gardening is very important because in our new building, I put in raised beds so that the elders could grow herbs that they use for cultural events, sage, cedar, for example, and then they raise watermelons. I mean, it's amazing. Strawberries and a little bitty because this area is not big. And like many communities across this country, our land is poison. So I have to have dirt brought in because the natural dirt has lead in it and other contaminants. So with this group, which, like I said, is so important, I make sure that we have a connection with them. Let me say something else that's real important about the work we do. In our old building, we probably had 11 funerals there in three years. Now, why is that? It's because funeral homes and churches are very hesitant, reluctant, refuse to have wakes. And in our community, wakes are very important, four days and nights. So, Again, I was just led to say you can have it here. And now we even have bigger space and nicer space so that once we believe that the surge is relenting to some extent, we will begin to have funerals again at our uh, new building. Uh, That's very important. But listen, thank you all so much for your time and attention and bless you. Don't leave us because we are going to move into our question and answer period. Okay. Um, uh, My name is Greg. I'm from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, That's where I live. I'm wondering how we um, educate. I'm wondering from maybe both of you, how do we educate people on these issues? Um, to those who may not necessarily want to be educated. And then my my second part of that is I wish some of this information was written down 
in braille or audio um, for us. So, and I was also interested in that Oregon Trail game. I'm wondering where that's available. Thank you. Well, you know, normally <laughs> with people who are resistant, I find ways to get to them, even if it involves a $25 gift card. Um, that's the way we got people to get tested and to get the vaccine for COVID. It was amazing. But anyway, um, then I did a lot of volunteer work in the prison system and they didn't have a choice as to whether or not they listened. Now, and then, you know, I'm often invited to speak on subjects that you wouldn't think had anything to do with what I talked about right now, but I find a way to weave it in. And so that, I think, is what we do. Um, and I'll just help out a little bit. Hi, I'm Naomi, and I am so glad that you both are here because I have been talking about this for a long time with our international committee. And um, I wanted to know um, how people um, on the reservations or in rural areas with disabilities um, happen to get services. Um, I know that, you know, there are a lot of people who, that are losing their vision and, you know, and of course other disabilities. So can anyone answer that question for me? Uh, I can answer it. And then Professor Huddle might also want to respond. Uh, tribes are like little nations and I shouldn't say little nations, but some of them are small and so they get money from the government because the government owes them. And so they use that money either by setting up their own health systems. IHS has hospitals scattered around in the 50 states. And then they have contract care. So it's only logical that they might be presented with someone who has um, a, a medical problem that they can't address so they can take their funds and go to like the Buffett Cancer Center here in Omaha for cancer care, which is some of the finest in the country. So that's an example of care that it's kind of like a military system where, you know, if you are in the military, there's some obligation to care for you, at least for some period of time. But that's why urban programs exist, because if you don't live on the reservation, often the tribes cannot afford to provide care for you. Uh, so that's where we come into play. I was just okay. going to to add um, that um, health care is actually one of the things that's mentioned in a lot of treaties. Um, that's where the federal government's obligation to provide health care to indigenous nations come from, comes from, at least in part, is it's a treaty protected obligation. Um, and there are a lot of Native nations um, that are really working on setting up um, their own clinics and um, you know, providing volunteer networks. Sometimes I know um, my family's reservation brings like food to people who are homebound um, and like tribally specific food. And a lot of that comes from communities um, organizing to help um, to help each other and themselves. Thank you. Hi, thank you. This is um, Mary Heroin from MCAC. 
and I and I don't I don't have a question, but I just wanted to well say hello to my fellow committee members and to everybody there, and to especially thank Professor Hiddle and Dr. Polk for being our guest speakers. Um, your presentations were wonderful, and and I I personally enjoyed it tremendously, and would think of a thousand questions, but we'll let others ask their questions. But thank you again. Okay. Um, so um, this is, <clears throat> this is uh, Ray Campbell's ask uh, here. And um, I remember reading, I think it was in the Chicago Tribune, um, about uh, resistance of Native peoples to the uh, vaccines or lack of access to the vaccines. I can't remember exactly what it was. How, how did... How have um, Native nation, you know, how have Native peoples been encouraged uh, to get the vaccines, and have they fallen or come close to falling victim to the same kind of misinformation about the vaccines that is out there in uh, general society? Yes, we have run into some of the same issues with misinformation and then some of the information was just not one of the things that we have in the community is trust among a segment of the native community. There are still some people who maybe don't trust what we say, but let me say this. I was not provided with vaccine from our local health department because I had questioned some of their policies. And so the Indian Health Service did provide me with all of the vaccine that I needed to have for free. I didn't have to pay for it. And I don't know if anybody has to pay for it. But um, And then we gave out $25 um, gift certificates for people to, who came, who took the time to come. And that's something that I do, because first of all, I know that many of our community members can use whatever it is we have to give. And so uh, there are some tribes, though, I don't think there was resistance. I think when you look at, for example, the Navajo Nation, there are communities down there, particularly, I think, in Arizona, maybe some parts of New Mexico, where they don't have potable water and they you know have to travel to get water and then during the pa- the, the the surge of the, in the pandemic there were communities who literally were cut off from those sources and so the loss of life was devastating um, just as it was in non-indian communities so i hope that answered your question Yeah, and I would also add, um, I was talking to um, one of my uh, friends who works for the Winnebago tribe um, here in Nebraska, and they mentioned that their vaccination rate after a year was 80% of people over the age of 12, um, when Nebraska as a state's vaccination rate was closer to, I think, like 65%, um, and repeatedly Um, Native people's vaccination rates are higher than other communities. And what my friend who works at Winnebago said is where they had success is where they drew on um, like 
where they basically culturally translated vaccine information to the community. Um, so um, when it, like, it seems like when it has been a community oriented effort, um, the vaccination programs have overcome significant barriers. This, my name is Wilma and the, the speakers were really great, but I would just like to ask a question of some of the people listening. Was anybody really surprised at what we heard from the first speaker? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's something that we all know about, and I understand about the trail of tears, but there's also trail uh, ocean of tears, that crossing, okay? And uh, also, when you talk about the children being taken from their parents, being a former athlete, one of my favorite all-time athletes is Jim Tharp. Okay, you remember his story? And then there's Jackie Robinson, and there's the 1968 Olympics. And I haven't heard anything about Bob Gibson, who's from Nebraska. St. Louis, great pitcher for the Cardinals. Come on now. Uh, Miss, uh, can I just respond to that, please? I wrote a book about black men and women of Nebraska, and Bob Gibson was featured in my book. And so I do want to also mentioned that we lost another great athlete uh, last week, Marlon Briscoe, who was the first African-American starting quarterback, passed away at age 76. Yes, Mary Lynn from Ohio. I have a question. You meant, if I heard you right, you mentioned that the rate of diabetes among Native Americans was very, very high. Is that significantly higher than the general population? And if so, why? You know, and, and, and I can only speak to what we see in our clinic, which would mean that it is high. And we look at things such as diet and lack of exercise. And I think, and Professor Huddle might be able to speak to this, I think moving people away from their land where they may have had a different diet and subjecting them to preservative foods and sugar and, 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 and food that's high in content that's destructive to the body could be the cause. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor, but in what I read, it seems to focus on diet and lack of exercise. Hi, this is Treva, and I would just like to know if there is a way that we can get in touch with either of the speakers or your website or any type of information that we can continue to use? How would we get that information from either of you or both of you? Thank you. I just want to say that this conference is one of the best organized that I know of in all my years of, of doing presentations. And so I am sure that Cheryl here can refer you to our website and my personal email. Um, so you're welcome, my cell phone number. You're welcome to all of that. And I would be just gratified if you would contact me so we can talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. Dr. Hiddle? Yes, um, I second what Dr. Polk said. Um, my personal email address is also, um, you know, my first name dot my last name at gmail.com. Um, if you have any questions, I am always happy um, to continue the conversation.